I hope. November 1785, the Scottish poet by the name of Robert Burns wrote a little one entitled To a Mouse. The poem has it that the speaker, unintentionally working in the fields, runs through a mouse's house and, in essence, destroys it. Later, he apologizes to the mouse. And although the mouse's house is destroyed, the speaker encourages the mouse in this interchange that he's not alone. Humans are in the same situation. One of the latter stanzas, and you could read the entire poem, but a lot of it's in that heavy brogue, and that's a little bit hard to read. But uh, this section says, But mouse, you are not alone. In proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew and leaves us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. The best laid plans of mice and men. Often been quoted by different ones, but it seems to be that it sourced in Robert Burns' poem. It highlights the fact that no matter how careful we are in our plans, they don't always come to fruition as we thought. Uh, the things that we planned, the things that we laid out, don't always produce what we intended them to be. Things as simple as planting a garden or making a summer vacation. Looking back, we'll say, boy, I'll never plant those tomato plants again. That was a waste of all my summer and all of my money, and it was just nothing at all. Or... Whose bright idea was it to spend a whole week at Camp Mosquito? You know? I mean, just wasted. Other times our planning choices return more tragic dividends. That surefire financial investment took all of my savings. Or the tragic loss of life after an ill-advised prom party. Nobody ever expects it. Nobody ever plans for it. Nobody ever goes ahead and say, well, that's my direction. The drug rehab, the pregnancy, the loss of finances, the court, even the jail. It's never my intention. I never planned it that way. But in our life, we've experienced all of that. James chapter 4, please. And if you would follow along, verses 13 to 17. James 4. 13, and we finally finish at the end of the chapter. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, the word provides unto us a nourishment of soul. 
And it speaks to our everyday life, to experiences, to matters of personal relationships, to planning, to our exchange with the world around us and our exchange with you. And it it brings clarity to these things. Yet, Lord, we don't know what your word will provide for us unless we seek it, unless your spirit be the one to teach us. May our hearts be receptive to it, not only to our ears this morning, but to our hearts throughout life. May the things that our, uh, James has provided here, uh, guided by the Spirit as they were written down, may they provide unto our hearts today uh, power and profit, uh, enlightenment and illumination. Thank you, Father, for your time with us in Christ's name. Amen. Our text today is not dealing with vacation destinations or garden planning. It's not dealing with Bernie Madoff investment schemes. But it does initially touch on the principle that affects all Christians. I I say Christians of all times, and that's the matter of presumptuous planning. And to see what what I mean by that is ask you to look into your text here and We go to verse 13 to see James' breakdown of this principle. He says, go to now. I I guess if it was written today, he would say, listen up. (laughs) Pay attention. Um, We've noted already in the book how James has a lot to say in various sections. In chapter 5, there's going to be a lot more he puts into uh, not a lot of continuing thought, but a lot of pieces. And, And here, beginning in verse 13, is a change of topic. His attention is now focused on this. So he says, hey, guys, listen up. Listen to this. Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we shall go into such a city and so forth and so on. Ye that say, if you would see it in the Greek, is it's a form that is a repetition. He's saying it again, again, again. You who are saying and repeating it again and again and again, and it's producing a confidence in them. I'm just not saying because I forgot what I said and I'm going to try it again, but I'm saying it because this is my goal. This is the direction I'm going to. And what does he say? Today, tomorrow, we're going to go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. First century in this part of the world, it was customary for merchants to go from city to city, buy and sell and trade. It was just commerce. It was it was done, and they had something like fifty thousand miles of Roman roads, uh, hard packed roads that were initially designed for the Roman army, but obviously availed themselves very much to merchants uh, going from place to place, and they used that successfully to make their trade. And so to say today and tomorrow we're going to go into such a city and continue and buy and sell, to me it seemed reasonable. If I was living at that time and if I'm the business person, that makes sense. It makes good business sense, merchant sense, successful businessmen's uh, principles to ascribe to buy. It's good to plan. Look down. What are we going to do? How are we going to work it out in order that things will take place properly and that we can make profit? At the statement of confidence, there are words that show careful planning and reasoning. 
And again, let me just read the verse, but let me emphasize. Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and we will continue there a year and we will buy and we will sell and we will get gain. It's a formula for success, but he's saying this is what we are going to do. This is what is going to take place in my business. The complaint that James has is against those people who, as they propose and as they make their applications and applying, they have left God out. Seems small, seems like a principle of non significance, but nonetheless, they haven't asked for his guidance, they haven't asked for his permission. There's no problem with planning, and there's no problem with profit. The problem is in doing those things, God is left out of the formula. God is ignored and acknowledging him as being the sovereign of the universe. Merchants, professing believers who left God out of the equation, uh, often called practical atheism. Uh, These people were ones who understood their trade and professionally understood the things that were taking place. But to leave God out purposely, intentionally, of any of our plans, I think, is a common trait of believers today. We oftentimes do that without even thinking. The presumption that we can go forward based upon our success of the past, based upon my education, my experience, my know-how, and whatever it is, I don't seek the Savior's face time and time again. Yeah, I've done this before. I've done it a million times. And look what's happened. It's, it's been good. So why not continue to continue to do that? I don't need to bother God. I don't need to enter into his realm. This rash self-confidence, I think, best qualified by the song of Frank Sinatra. I did it my way, you know? He says, my whole life has been like this, and I look in the past, and I won because I did it my way. And in essence, that's what he's saying. That's the provision of success. I did it my way. How do you think God was looking at this? future without God, profoundly confident in themselves, elevating themselves up to a place of God. I want to read a parable that Jesus gave, and it's a familiar one, but in the matter of presumptuous planning, it speaks very clearly. You know it, but again, as I read it, listen to this matter of presumptuous planning. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all of my fruits and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be 
which thou hast provided. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and not rich towards God. In both cases, the writing of James and the parable that Jesus gives gives us the same conclusion. That there was an assumption that the human was in control and that they had forgotten or ignored the fact that God is God. He is the sovereign of the universe and there's nothing that passes his gaze and nothing has gone by without his control. He is sovereign over all things. And it's interesting, James proves that by looking at verse 14. What does he say? Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. (laughs) That that was evident in Jesus' parable, wasn't it? Oh, you've done all of this and all of this. And and, then God says to him, he says, "Ah, your soul's required. Time to cash in. This is it. Boom. At any time. It happens in life. Every week the news attests to it. An auto accident, a stray bullet, uh, an ill-advised party that has brought upon great tragedy, unsuspected heart attack, hotel collapse, flash flood. Moves to success can all of a sudden be ended at any time. And we hear the words, oh my, he's so young, or she was so young. They had their whole life in front of them. Oh, he was just, he was how old? Oh, that was so young. And we're like, we're shocked by it. He should have lived much longer. He should have been able to enjoy. But James says, you don't know. You have no control over any of that. We mentioned that the audience that James wrote to were Jewish believers and that what they would have been familiar with were the words of Jesus and the book of Proverbs. So there are a lot of similarities in Proverbs and in in that uh, Proverbs 27.1, Boast not thyself of the morrow, for thou knowest not what the day may bring forth. Here's Solomon, wisest man, great power and wealth. And he says, hey, students, don't make your boast, don't make your pride, don't make your planning confident on tomorrow because you've got no idea what it's going to be. He's not saying planning is bad. He's not saying being wise is bad, but he's saying making a boast, being proud of that beyond God. This morning when you rolled out of bed, you had no idea what was going to take place this afternoon, did you? Or tonight. And you still don't. We have a good idea. We're confident because of our past record. Not only do we not know what's going to happen in the next 12 hours, much less the next 12 months or the next 12 years. It is the unknown. James says, life is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Life is a vapor, a a puff of smoke. Not to be confused with that Canadian stuff that's been coming down. I'd like for that to be be gone. The cloud, a dust, a shadow, a breath, a blade of grass, a cloud, a flower. Today is here, but tomorrow it's gone. In some ways, that sounds kind of harsh on James' part. He's saying life is just as a vapor. He's not talking about the value of life. 
Life is very valuable. It's precious. God understands that. And he's laid that before us. But he's saying, as far as the, the time upon which we live here on this earth, our three score and ten years or whatever it is, it's short. You know, we had somebody else go home to be with the Lord this past week. And, and I was talking to a friend and, and he said, you know, God put all of these people in our lives and we went to school together and and I said, he sprinkled these, and now they're gone. These are gone. They're gone. And, and at the time, it was so close. And yet, all along life, and, 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 it's, and it's just gone. It's just it disappeared. The metaphor has all to speak about the length of time. I've shared this with you before, but um, if you remember it, then you'll be all the better. And if you don't remember it, then it'll be good. Uh, we had a class in Shelton College with a, three chalkboards around and uh, the teacher came in one day with his uh, little metal chalk holder and he starts with a line and he goes around as far as in and we're watching him and like what's going on here and he goes around again and again and again he went around the room like you know three or four times and then he stopped and he takes the chalk and he puts one little dot on that uh, that that line and he says this line if you can think of it is eternity and he says, I've, I've, I've limited it by this, but think of it as eternity. And this little dot is your frame of reference, your three score in 10 years, how many ever that is. And in essence, what you do within that period of time affects your life for all eternity, for all of that line. And, and we, we're stuck in a tunnel my 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years, and we look like that and we say, oh, that's a lot, you know? And yet when you look way down that way and way down that way, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. And James says, understand, this is just a a vapor. When you plan all of this thinking that that is so important, eternity being much more important, understand it correctly. The decisions that I make for myself are based upon my ability, my qualifications, my understanding, in essence, my sovereignty, and I'm ignoring God. That little spot, that little dot on the line, everything that I do, I base it upon that, thinking that I'm sovereign on that one spot, when in essence, I can be understanding of the one who knows all eternity from one end to the other and allow him to guide me in such decisions. James, though, says not all is lost. After this big clobbering he gives them, you know, this is the way you've acted, life is a vapor, you know, but he says, no, Uh, verse 15 Um, for that she ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this and that. Boy, there's a familiar phrase, isn't it? If you had a quarter for every time you said or you heard somebody say, Lord willing, and we oftentimes add to that little phrase, and the crick don't rise, you know, maybe that's a southern phrase that's added on to it. Yet, what does it mean? Found some old letters and Christians hundred years ago or so, you would notice a postscript at the end of the letters, and it would say D-V. And it refers to Dio Valente, Latin for if the Lord wills. 
Christians understood, and we should understand that these things are said or these things are done or these things are If God wills, if it is his will, if he has permitted it, if it is sovereign oversight, he does that. The truth is, when it comes to my future, I am to plan with my Heavenly Father's guidance and permission. And if there is no guarantee on tomorrow, I need to understand the one who holds tomorrow. There's a hymn written by a dear brother about that. I don't know about tomorrow, but I know the one who holds tomorrow. I need to trust the one who knows tomorrow, and I'm to seek his face and to know him through his word. He has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself in his word and the spirit of God guiding his spirit in, in the word to help me to know who he is. This vertical relationship in that horizontal relationship between each other. That's what he's provided for such. Today or tomorrow, if the Lord so directs, we will go into such a city and continue there a year. And if the Lord allows, we will buy and sell and get gain. And if not, we are comfortable with what happens because it is the Lord's will. It's a hard attitude. It's a thought process, but it's a hard attitude. If I lose, then praise God to him. He knows he's, un, he's permitted it. He's, he's allowed that to take place. And if it's profitable, praise God, he's done that. And therefore, he will be rejoicing in it. Simple enough, isn't it? But apparently, and again, I don't think that James was, had visited these people, but he knew their, their, their core. And so he says something additional in verse 16. He says, but now ye rejoice in your boastings, and all such rejoicing is evil. Not enough to be able to say it's wrong to plan ahead and leave God out because you should say if God wills. But now he gives him another punch and he says, you've not only boasted in your planning, but you're rejoicing in your boasting. You've, you've really elevated this whole thing to say, move aside God. John MacArthur writes here, those in the first group are practical atheists living as if God did not exist. Those in the second category are self-theists, refusing to submit to the uncertainties of life to God. They set themselves their own goals and their own wills above God, above God's will. Though acknowledged, simply is not as important as their plans. Though such disdain does not characterize the life of as a believer generally, even Christians are often guilty of setting aside God's will in favor of their own plans. Ah, no. I would never do that. Or don't I? Remember the rich man's boast that Jesus offered in the parable? Look at the personal pronouns in there. You know. I, 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 I. Me, 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 me. He, 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 you know, he, him, him, they're all, it's all centered about him. And, and the young man that Jesus gave the parable to, and even to us, we recognize those words. How often do I do things thinking how this will benefit me versus how this will glorify God? 
Remember Nebuchadnezzar's boast just before the Lord decided to retire him to the fields, you know, give him a new hairstyle. He says, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and the honor of my majesty? As the, word, as the words are coming out all of a sudden, you know, psh, God says, let's recognize who's in charge here. You know, Dictators, business tycoons, professional athletes, even pastors can swallow such an attitude. They can find that I've achieved this place in life because of what I've done. And they even acknowledge it by making such boasts, by saying how great they are, and not necessarily by word, but surely by deed. From the very beginning, we seek to excel at school. We train our children to do that. We seek to excel as young adults out of school and in life, in careers, in marriage, in family, and even in our times of retirement. Our goal is often independence and self-reliance. I can do it on my own. I can live by myself. I can handle this. I don't need your help. I think it's all part of the great American dream, self-reliance. It's pushed and it's prompted by all sorts of patterns. In this worldview, God is an accessory to our plans, just like it was to the merchants. They were, we said, they were Jewish believers. They were Christians in the earliest sense. And so there was an acknowledgement of God. They understood that. But practically speaking, they said, if there's help, well, then he can give it. God's main job is to grant our request and make our dreams come true. And if those dreams and, and requests don't necessarily come about simply because, well, there was some accident here or maybe because of my own sin, then I can go back to him and say, God, help me out. Rescue me at this time. That's what he's there for, like a spare tire. You know, I can make this journey. I can do it all. And, and if something happens, I can always change the tire and, and get I can be on my road again, rather than him being the constant, rather than him being the one I look for all the time, and I find myself leaning on. William Ernest Henley, 16 years of age, and his left leg had to be amputated because of an instance of complications following tuberculosis. A couple years later, when he was 23, something similar happened to his right leg. And the doctor said to him, you're going to need the right leg amputated. And he was rather stern than, oh, that's not going to happen to me. And he went to Scotland and sought out uh, Dr. Lister, who became very famous in his surgeries and his medical procedures uh, uh, throughout the world, actually. And they ended up that um, he did not have to perform the surgery, and his, his right leg was, was, in essence, cured. But while he was in recovery... He wrote a poem by the name of Invictus. Um, I think the, the British have their what, military games, in, Invictus, you know. Uh, do you know what it means, Invictus? Unconquerable. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be, for I am unconquerable soul. 
in the fell clutch of circumstance. I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but not unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Epitomized the attitude that James is speaking about and epitomizes the world that's around us in men and in women, in societies, even in nations, that I don't need anything that's going to make me subservient to anybody else, especially a God. I can control it myself. We may never say such, and we may ever be finding it offensive if somebody would accuse us of such an attitude. But we who call Jesus as our Savior and carry our Bibles and attend public worship and hold to every Christian value and never seek his will, what are we then? What are we if we've never asked for his hand, if we've never been led by his leading and honestly recognize that this is God's will and I will do it that way? We call it a sin of omission. James ends with verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If I know it, and maybe that's the limitation, how much do I know of him? If I know him, and if I know his will, and I don't do it, that's just as guilty as if I purposely go out and sin. I'm omitting that which is right to do. Question for us is this morning, why do people who know the will of God deliberately disobey? And we can all raise our hands because <laughs> we do it. We do it. We understand God's word. We've heard it preached and heard it taught, and we've seen it in the characters of Scripture. We've studied it, and we've understood the beginnings and the ends of of either actions of what takes place, yet we refuse to obey it. I think there are a number of reasons. One may be pride. I, I'm just who I am, you know. I'm not necessarily the captain of my fate, you know, or the one in charge of my soul, but I'm not going to make changes. Maybe an unwillingness to submit because things are going to be too different. That means I have to change my lifestyle? Eh, I'm not willing to do that. Maybe a change of fear or failure. Maybe peer pressure. I think peer pressure has a lot to do with it. I can't be submissive to God because of those that are around me that have influenced my thinking and my attitudes. I'm sure there are occasions for it's those who have a bitterness towards God. Something took place and I am angry at him and there's no way that I'm going to be submissive to him. Maybe we find some alterations or other options that are more palatable. Could be even just an ignorance of God's will. I just don't know. Is that the direction to go in? Some folks act as though the will of God is something that they can accept or reject. I can, hey, today, yes, things are going good. I'll take God's will. 
Things aren't going too good today. I've got a lot of concerns, a lot of fears. I'm not necessarily going down that direction. There has got to be something else, another way to do it. Make it more profitable, more palatable, more enjoyable. I'm going to go that way. I just don't understand God's will. Brethren, his will is not an option. It's an obligation. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. Believers, a sacrifice, we think of sacrifice, we think of, you know, death, you know, that's it. But he says, no, a living sacrifice. In other words, I have cut off all that which is around me, and I said, Lord, I am yours to do with as you please, to go where you want me to go, to say what you want me to say, to be what you want me to be. And then verse 2, he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. In other words, I learn by experience that I can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's God's will? I don't know it all of a sudden, but I can know it as I do spend time with him. Those of you who have been married for a few years understand the longer you're with your spouse, the more you know that person. You understand their weaknesses and their strengths, their likenesses and their dislikes. You understand their will. Yes, there are buttons I can push, and I know the reaction that I'm going to get if I push those certain buttons. I know the will. And sometimes I just want to be mean about it. So I push the wrong button. But I can't do that with God. I have to know him. And so the more I know him, the more I know his will. And I would never do that which is against his will. That's the key. Spend much time in his word. Understand him. Talk with him. Frequent his palace. Allow him to be your closest friend. And understand by that that he won't have to go into a long, doesn't have to hit you with the two before in the side of your head. He just whisper a word. This is what I want you to do. And you say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. This is what, this is what James was facing. And, and we don't want to criticize these early believers because this was brand new to them. We could criticize ourselves more so because we've got the whole Old and New Testament and we've got a history of Christianity to learn and understand by. So they are so much like us and that's why these words, I think, speak more to us than they do to them. When we do our planning, it is the will of God. And as we understand that, we don't want to, again, mention last week, run ahead of him or lag behind, but be there with him, trusting in him. Speak much with him. Know the God who has called you out of darkness into light and to know what he wants for you. Let's pray. Father, in the quietness of our morning, we are thankful for that which is um, given to us by example. Uh, the men and women of the Old Testament, New Testament, the things that they have said and written or our understanding. We have the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, from his, uh, the prophecies of before his coming to earth and in his birth and his life and his death and burial and resurrection. For those things which are still to come, we have all of these things. 
to be our guide and stay. As we look ahead, Father, we know not what tomorrow brings, but we pray that we'll continue to know the one who holds tomorrow and that our ears would be sensitive to his call, that our, our, our senses would be sensitive to his touch, that we would understand, Father, where you would have us to go or keep away from, things that we should see and should not see, or hear and not hear, things that our hearts should be feeling and, and not even be involved in. We thank you for your love that has allowed us to, to touch this and, and to be uh, uh, nourished by it. May it be a blessing not only today but throughout eternity in Christ's name. Amen.